grace and peace to y'all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to jump right into the next chapter in this series that I've been working on, kind of an after Easter series. We've just been kind of following along and follow this movie, I guess, uh, that we can watch and see what's happening in the early church. And um, I, not only do I love reading about the scripture, but I have a very vivid imagination. So I, I love to read, especially stories, because it feels like it can suck me in and get right there. And I, so I get a big kick out of it, and I hope you do too. Um, the title of the message today is, Because They're So Sad, You See. And um, so we're starting on chapter uh, 5 in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. And uh, so we, we jump right in into after the last time I, uh, we were in uh, Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John had just been released from uh, uh, being pulled before the council and on trial for healing um, uh, the lame man. And so they're out, and uh, we kind of read of what's happening in the early church. They're, they're pulling all their resources together. They're, they're kind of joining together and being a, a, a one big happy family, right? Well, in chapter 5, we read the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And it wasn't so much... Well, it was wrong that they lied about what they were, uh, uh, that they had given all of what they had promised to the church. That was a big, a big problem. But the real problem lies in that they were expecting the benefit of doing it. So, so there was the lie that was wrong, but they were doing it because they were expecting something in return. And so we, if you aren't familiar with that story that happened, uh, they both dropped dead uh, right there. So it's a pretty serious account. Now, I will say to kind of, you know, uh, uh, this, for, as far as I know, that's one of the only recorded accounts of something like that happened really early on. Uh, so that's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. And then we also read uh, later on in chapters, uh, uh, in the chapter 5 before 16, we read how, uh, again, the, the, the disciples are gathering and still kind of gathering and pulling their resources. But then we get to another very interesting account, starting on verse 17. And we read, The high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And remember, it was the Sadducees who brought Peter and John before the council in Jerusalem. The high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the party of the Sadducees, because they were filled with envy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, brought them out, and said, Go stand in the temple and keep on telling the people the whole message about this life. After they heard this, they entered the temple courts at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. That is, the whole council of elders of the people of Israel. So the Sanhedrin is the council. And so they brought them. They called them to come. Then they sent orders to the jail to have the apostles brought in. But when the officers arrived, they did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported, uh, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. When the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were puzzled about them. Wondering what could have happened. I'll come back on that later, but I read that and I find it funny. 
Um, then someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles in without force because they were afraid that the people might stone them. And they brought them in. They had them stand before the Sanhedrin. The high priest asked them, did we not give you strict orders not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood down on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you arrested and killed, by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and began making a plan to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was highly respected by all of the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he said to them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you are about to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, all his followers were scattered, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and led many people in a revolt. He also was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. Perhaps you might even be found to be fighting against God. They were convinced by him. They summoned the apostles, beat them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. Every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that is Jesus Christ. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. In verse 17, we read, The high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the part of the Sadducees, because they were filled with envy. Sadducees. There was a little kid song in... Uh, vacation Bible school or, or in Sunday school when I was a kid that you that we sang about wanting to be a sheep and uh, there was kind of a play on words that you know you don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad you see and uh, so that was the hint of the title so whenever for me and I, I hear Pharisee and I think the little song and I hear Sadducee and I think the little other little song and uh, so that was my kind of play on that and it's interesting okay I'm I'll, I'll be 30 I'll be 37 soon. And those, those, little, those little rhymes and stuff, those little rhymes and stuff that I was taught as a kid, I can still bring them up. And it's not just that one, but one song that reverberates in my mind, especially in times when I feel like I'm all alone in my trials, is Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And something you, you don't know, you don't realize until you get older what kind of an impact stuff like that is having on you as a, as a kid. And then 
30 years from now, I pray that my boys will remember the same. And, and I see God has promised that he'll never leave them or forsake them. So as much as he's had patience and, and grace with me, I know that he will have with them also. Envy. The Sadducees were, had, were filled with envy. Things haven't changed much when it comes to the church. Envy of what is being popularized by the people, especially when it is not the institution that you are a part of and the loss of power that comes with it. So they were envious because all of Jerusalem was filled with this new teaching. And so their power, their stranglehold on the people is slowly leaving their fingers and going towards this new teaching. That's why they were envious. Then This does not mean that all popular new things in the church are of God or are biblically correct, theologically sound, but watch how quickly you can become the older brother in the story of the prodigal son when you see the Lord throw grace at and a party for the younger brother who squandered everything. It's real easy where all of a sudden this, you know, someone who hasn't been working like you have the whole, all your life, all of a sudden seems to be getting everything from the Lord or what we would consider to be blessings, and then immediately will start kind of mumble, and, you know, God never threw me a party. He never sacrificed a goat for me. You know, and all of a sudden you're channeling the older brother. I'm talking about me. One other point to make. The Sadducees are so furious with this new teaching because their group openly teaches against any concept of the resurrection of the dead. And this is exactly what Peter and John and Christianity is teaching. It all revolves around the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here they are talking about this and teaching this. And the Sadducees, one of the things that makes them Sadducees is that they are against the teaching that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. So it completely is discounting and, and, and crumbling their whole group. So that's another reason why they're upset. May this always be true. If anyone is upset with Christianity... If anyone is upset with the Christian church, may it be because it revolves around the teaching that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and was raised from the dead for sinners. At least in our, our culture, I would make the argument that this is not the case. That this teaching is not why those in our culture hate Christianity. Many would not even identify Christianity as a religion that revolves around this message. There is research showing that Christians in America are confused or are unaware or have not been taught what Christianity is all about. In 2016, research determined that 73% of Americans identify as a Christian. That's pretty good, I think. 73%, I'll take it. That's, that's, that's majority. That's passing. That sounds good at first. But the same study asked the following question of those who identify as Christian. This question was this. Do you agree that if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn a place in heaven? 55% said yes. <laughs> That's in my notes. Wow. That is nowhere even near the Christian message. I would suggest that where the church is lacking is not its message of get up and do something, do more, try harder, but where it is failing is given the message that Christ saves us all by himself, that he earned our place in heaven on the cross and gives himself as a gift to us freely. 
Chapter, uh, verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and keep on telling the people the whole message about this life. After they heard this, they entered the temple courts at daybreak and began to teach. The angel brought them out. See, that's kind of funny to me. The angel didn't just go and lock the door and say, all right, you know, come on, we're going to be leaving now. The angel has, is literally bringing them out. And take note why they were released. That why they were released. It was not just to bless them to no longer be in prison. It was to release them for the purpose of continuing the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. Then they sent orders to the jail to have the apostles brought in. But when the officers arrived, they did not find them in the prison. And remember, I kind of laughed when I said that they were confused about what's going, what, how, what happened. How did they get out? They're still shocked. This is a time period that's happening. You have the death of Jesus. You have the resurrection of Jesus. You have the spread of the gospel. They just have the lame man who's now up and talking. And, and they're, again, they're like, how, why are they not there in prison? Like, there's still no connection that, you know, God is proving a point that he can do whatever he wants right now. All of Jerusalem is filled with this teaching. Verse 28, when they were talking to Peter and John, they were saying, you're going to bring this man's blood down on us. You are determined to bring this man's blood down on us. This is funny because that is exactly what they need. It's the blood of Jesus to rain down on them and to cover them. And that's what they were meaning in more of you're trying to make us responsible for his death. That's what they're meaning. But I read these words and I find it very funny because it's like, well, that's what you need. That's what you need is that the blood of Jesus is on you. That's what I need. That's what you need. But Peter and, and, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our forefathers raised Jesus, whom you arrested and killed by hanging him on a cross. So they brought the law in. The law was meant to kill. They brought in it really quick when they preached him, preached to them. It was the law first. Yeah, you killed Jesus. You hung him on a cross. Then they followed up with the very next verse. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. There was the law first and then the gospel. You killed Jesus but he's given you repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is a, another example of law and gospel preaching, properly distinguishing between law and gospel. And maybe you're like me and, and have skipped past that part so many times without realizing what is being said here, the good news of what is being said here. I just ran past verse 31 saying that God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that? God gives repentance. Well, I need to hear that. Because, see, for so long in my life growing up, I thought repentance was something that I was supposed to conjure up and do. I thought it was on me. I thought the responsibility was on me. I thought the action was on me. I thought the verbs was on me. And here we read that God, just as he gives us faith in him, he gifts us with repentance as well. 
He gifts us with forgiveness of sins as well. You catch that? That's good news. That's good news because if I'm repenting, it's because God gave me the gift to repent. Remember David, what he said in Psalms? Lord, turn me so I shall be turned. That's what repentance is. Turn. Jesus saves you all by himself. Therefore, so that we cannot boast or look to ourselves as reason and assurance for our, salva for our salvation. We've been given something, someone far greater. We can look to Jesus Christ as the assurance of our salvation. When it comes to relationship with God, everything that is required of you is given to you as a gift. The pressure is off. There is no need for guilt. You already have been given everything courtesy of Jesus Christ. And then 32, we read, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Here is a reference to being a witness. This has been a popular term thrown, about in, thrown around about in evangelical Christianity. You know, you know, the phrase, can I get a witness? Or, or you know, being a witness. Or, or don't hurt your witness. Or if your witness is about you, you're going to hurt your witness 100% of the time. If you are witnessing to other people about you, you're going to hurt your witness eventually. I know I am. If, if the message is about me and how great I am, and then I mess up and people see me messing up, which is going to happen, my witness to myself is going to be... So when it talks about being a witness here, what is it referring to? Being a witness in the terms of a witness for Jesus Christ is to wit be a witness to others about who he is and what he has done. So rather than looking at, look and show how dead I was and I am alive now because of Jesus Christ, for he is great and he has saved me all by himself and he offered this gift to you as well. Number two, the value of the Christian witness is not found within the Christian himself, but in the value of the Christian witness is found in Christ. This is also true with the value of the Christian, for he or she is not found within the identity. Excuse me, I'm missing up my notes. The value of the Christian is not found in what the Christian has done for Christ. The value of the Christian is found in what Christ has done for the Christian. Your identity as a Christian is not bound in what you have done for Christ. Your, your identity as a Christian, the value of it is found in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Am I tracking? Is that making sense? Okay. That's also very good news for me. When they heard this, they were furious and began making a plan to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was highly respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Gamaliel, he was the guy who taught Paul, Saul, who would become Paul. Y'all track with that too? So that's the same Gamaliel who taught Saul, who we'll find out in a few next uh, series of the story of Saul. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited about that. And then he goes on and tells about, look, if this is of God, you know, you're not going to be able to stop it. 
You know, it'll, it'll, it'll fail. And this is, this is true for us today as well. Even whenever there's a trendy or a fringe kind of Christian excitement or explosion or whatever, its popularity might be in a new style of music, fashion, lingo, attitude, performance, activities, entertainment. Those that are wrapped in and have a focus on revolving around Christ, may we not oppose them. But the ones that are not of God, no need to fret, for they will fail in the end. Be as gentle as doves and wise as serpents. Do not be misled or deceived. Ask yourselves, does something make much of Jesus or something else or someone else? And it says that the, the Sanhedrin was convinced by Gamil not to, not to kill them. But they still beat them up. It was like, it's like, okay, Gamil, you convinced us they might be of God. Pow, 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 pow. You know, <laughs> get out of here. It's just like they still had to get their, you know, their, their kicks in. But then notice what happens. The apostles let the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. Every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the name of Jesus. That is a different level of faith. I mean, I, it's easy for me to say, oh, yeah, that would be me, too. I don't know. If someone's beating up on me, I'm, I'm ready to go. And, and so I, and to, to have that and to, the, to thank God, thank you that we've been counted worthy. That's, that's God doing something. That's not Peter and John. That's the Holy Spirit empowering them to think that and to say that and to feel that way. For what purpose? To point to Christ. This persecution did not deter them, but motivated them. House to house, every day, in the temple courts, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Another side note. Throughout Christian history, persecution of the church has grown the church, strengthened the church, strengthened faith, more than prosperity of the church ever has. That is the pattern, and it also fits the pattern that God puts on display throughout Scripture. He does almost the opposite of what we think he should do almost every single time when it comes to matters regarding the relationship with his people. See, in, in our understanding, we believe that people who have lots of faith is going to make God turn his head and smile and be happy with them. Large-sized faith or itty-bitty faith. That's not what causes God to turn and to, to smile upon you. Oh, if I just have more faith, God will love me more. The value in faith in Christ is not in whether it's big or whether it's small. Its value is in what or who it has faith in. It's the object of your faith that brings the value. Faith in who? Jesus Christ. There's the value. In him. Itty bitty faith or mountaintop faith. If Jesus, if, if you are in Christ, if you have received faith in Christ, remember it's a gift. God gifts us with faith. If you have it, God is already smiling and pleased and has his face towards you. Because of you? No. 
because of Jesus Christ. He is well pleased with you because he's well pleased with Jesus Christ. All disappointment, wrath, shame, whatever was already poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for me. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. It's finished. Will the team come forward, please? The good news is this, that Jesus was also brought before a council. He was also condemned and persecuted for you and for me. His killers thought that they had put this matter to rest through what they thought was final persecution of Jesus. But he came back and included those who are in him, who are in Christ, to spread this message of who he is and what he has done. Now this is a different kind of invitation, a different kind of altar call than one you might have experienced. I'm not here to ask you to make a decision for Jesus. I'm here to tell you that Jesus already made a decision for you. He already decided to lay his life down on the cross for you. He decided that he would die to have you. That's the decision that Jesus made. So I'm not here to ask you, go this way, go that way. I'm here to give you Christ for you specifically for you. And if you desire to confess the following, please, please do so along with me. Dear God, our Creator and our Redeemer, we poor sinners confess to you that we are by nature sinful and unclean and that we have sinned against you by thought, word, and deed. If you, like me, confess this, then please hear me next. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you and that you are forgiven of all your sin. Jesus Christ saved you all by himself. And based off of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and me are forgiven. May the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.